Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and on episode three, I sat down with Tony Holler. Tony Holler is best known for the system that he developed as a track and field coach known as Feed the Cats. Feed the Cats has grown substantially in the last few years and is now incorporated into a variety of sports and preparatory methods. Tony is also a co-founder of the Track Football Consortium, a yearly clinic for football coaches, track coaches, strength and conditioning professionals, and anyone looking to grow and learn. Football Track Consortium promotes what it brands as Rebel Talent and spotlights individuals that are applying their trade and approaching things in new, unique, and effective ways. On this episode, we discuss a variety of topics, varying from speed training and fostering the love for sprinting, how and why to apply minimum effective dose, the idea of the Rebel Talent, and the rationale behind multi-sport athletes. Without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to episode three of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and on today's show, I'll be sitting down to talk to Tony Holler, the founder of Feed the Cats. How you doing, Coach? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I know you're beginning to start your track season, so I appreciate you taking time to sit down with me today. It's ahead, great coach. that uh, I'm retired now so that I don't have to like <laughs> teach chemistry and coach track. So, uh, so my time's okay. I, I, you know, track is only like eight hours a day. Yes, sir. That's, that's awesome. If you would just start out by introducing yourself, most people already know you, but if you would give me a brief introduction, where you're located, the things you're involved in. Yeah, I'm a, um, I always say that I'm a coach's kid. Uh, my dad, 47 years coaching and teaching, and then he worked as a Dean's assistant for 10 years after that. So 57 years in the business, and basically being his oldest son, I was like his apprentice or his wingman all the way through, just like you are a coach's kid. You know, we're different. Coaches' kids are different. You know, they see the world through sports. And, uh, and so I've been in the business for 40 years and I got four kids and two of them were coaches. I, uh, I am a track coach only now. That's why I've become so opinionated about football. Uh, you know, I worked 25 years in football. And when you're on a staff, you can't really speak up much, uh, which is probably the problem with football is that it's so top down that there's no dissent and there's no change and that football doesn't e- evolve the way it needs to. But yeah, I spent 25 years in football and I started as a head basketball coach. I thought that's what I was going to be all my life. And I got fired uh, after eight years of being a head basketball coach when I was only 30 years old. And strangely, I got hired as a track, as the track coach a month before the same board fired me. So um, very, very strange. And I just had to grow where I was planted and had to become, had to make track my life kind of. So sometimes, you know, there's, there's unknown twists and turns in, in the, uh, in the road we're on. I agree. I never thought I would be an educator myself. I, I, I was going to law school. I had all these other grand ambitions. And then uh, it was just a blessing to, to get involved in education. So it's funny the way that life twists and turn and, and where you end up and is where you actually feel like you should have been planted originally to start with. Yeah, I think I think that when, when I decided that I was going to go into education, I was pre-med in, in college. And when I decided I was going into education, I, uh, I was absolutely sure. I mean, 100% sure, because I lived with a teacher and a coach. I knew exactly what his life was, and that was the exact life I wanted. And it wasn't like I believed it was all going to be, you know, roses and happiness and smooth sailing. No, it was going to be a life of 
ups and downs, as you know, as a coach, but I wanted all those ups and downs. I wanted it all and I've had it all. It's awesome. On this podcast, I, I started it for a variety of reasons, but one of the main reasons that I started this podcast was to look at the different methods in which people employ to advance athletes over time. And I'm a father now myself. I have a two and a half year old son. And yesterday he got home from school, from his daycare. And I was down in the garage. I have a, a gym at my house and I had just got done lifting. And he got out of the car ramping and roaring, ready to run. And he, he got me on the line and he said, one of his catchphrases is, are you ready? So we got on the line and we got going. Next thing I know, we're running sprints. Uh, maybe not feed the cat style. Maybe I need to teach him a little bit more about that. But it was more like gassers. But I guess it gassed him out before bed. And I say all that because I feel like sprinting is just a pure natural movement. Locomotion is, is natural. We are movers with our bodies. And I was just wondering if you could provide a little input about how coaches and youth development coaches can foster a love for sprinting in kids. Yeah, that's a, just a terrific question. There's so much to unpack there. I believe that sprinting is the most athletic thing that the human body can do. The most athletic. The ability to run away from uh, a hungry predator or to chase our food that is true athleticism. How fast can you make your body go? And it's so weird that I say it's the most important cornerstone of athleticism. And I think the recruitment of fast players proves that to be correct. But yet coaches almost back off and say, it's God given, you know, like I can get them in shape, but I can't get them fast. Uh, I can get them strong but I can't get them fast. And it's just so ridiculous. And I think the reason why coaches do that is because I say that speed grows slow, speed grows like a tree. And, and, and they don't have the patience to, to work for eight weeks with speed as the priority when you only improve a guy by one mile an hour. But that one mile an hour is a game changer. So getting back to that youth thing, like so many things in our life, like education, kids love to sprint uh, when they're little. They love it. There's, I mean, if, if you say, hey, I'll time you, they'll run faster. Matter of fact, they'll, they'll clean their room faster if you say, I'll time you. So we have this built-in love of sprinting. And then we plug them into an endurance sport like soccer, where we just take the sprint out of them and they're just, they're just walking and jogging everywhere. And then we have them run sprints for punishment and for conditioning. And if you're running the sprints for conditioning, you're not sprinting, you're just running. And, uh, and so we, we take the joy out of sprinting for kids. Uh, when, when I talk to somebody about, hey, you should run track for me. They go, yeah, but I just don't like all that running. I go, we don't do any running. All we do is sprinting and, and we're always rested. And so it's just a, it's a crazy thing. And I, I just think that coaches take the joy out of so many things for kids and happy kids are good athletes. A lot of great things there, coach. A quote that I saw the other day by, by Richard Feynman, and I, I follow Feynman on Twitter and he throws a lot of good quotes out there, right? And it says, stupidity is knowing the truth, seeing the truth, but still believing lies. And that's more infectious than any other disease. And to me, I feel like coaches understand that they could develop speed, 
but it's it's almost like they forget about it, Coach. Is it, or do they have a misunderstanding? Do you feel like it's more often a misunderstanding or they just forget it within the midst of all their competitions? Something goes wrong, so I want to punish a kid and I want to, I want to use sprints as a method to punish them. So what, what method, to go further down the rabbit hole, why do you think that that still exists? Because everybody understands that if you're sprinting, it needs to be an all-out max intent thing. And you say five seconds for, for max velocity sprinting or, or it's not sprinting. So if you could just expand on why that lie continues to perpetuate, even though people understand that, I believe. Yeah, I'll go in two different directions on that. One is we live in this world now, especially at the college level, where S&C people are in charge of athleticism, that coaches coach the game, but SNC people are in charge of athleticism. And just the title of, of strength and conditioning means that you're going to lift your ass off and then run your ass off. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, you know, I, I would love to change the profession to speed and power that, that let's build athletes. And, and I love this. The, my definition, I got this from Mike Whiteman with the uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Riverhounds, a, a soccer SNC guy. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. He is fabulous. And, and he said, I want athletes. He's talking about look like little kids, girls, boys, whatever that, that lift heavy, sprint fast, jump high, jump far. And there are people who will argue with me on that. Like, no, I think they need, you know, the Olympic lift and I, they need to really condition hard. And I'm like, okay, if you're arguing, would you argue that you would want to be the guy that's slow, weak, and non-explosive. I mean, that's the opposite of what Mike's definition is. Weak and uh, slow and non-explosive. I mean, that is the worst athlete in the world, whether you are lacrosse, soccer, football, basketball, track. You do not want to have that deadly three things going on. So I think the whole SNC industry is, is kind of messed up because almost everyone in the SNC industry is a weightlifter. That's, that's where they cut their teeth. They love the weight room. And the great thing about sprinting is you don't have to lock up your weight room. You just have to prioritize something above the weights. <laughs> that is speed. And that's so hard. And then the other direction I want to go with this is that coaches in general, which includes SNC people, are typically from an athletic background where they were a step slow, that they were not the cats of the world, that they had to outwork people, that they had to put a lot of attention to details that like the really gifted athletes never had to do. And because of that, they became great coaches. But the problem is with that is that they see speed as a genetic trait that they did not have. And so they will work on everything with the exception of speed. And so I've kind of dedicated my last 10 years to try and do these tent revivals where I'm talking like a evangelical preacher to these coaches about how you can really change speed. And I mean, I just got a text right before I came on from Joel Reinhardt from UMass. And he's been working with the girls lacrosse team at UMass. And since January 15th to now, which is about four months, their girls have gone from 15.9 miles an hour average to 17.2, a 1.3 mile an hour difference. He has totally changed those girls. 
they will be, and people say, oh, well, so, uh, lacrosse is an acceleration sport. I don't care. That maximum speed will be the tide that lifts all boats and there'll be better athletes. If you want to argue against that, basically you're arguing slow is okay. And it's not. A couple of things you said that really resonated with me. Number one, Hound's uh, speed and strength. I love his stuff. The things I notice in his videos is how rhythmic his kids are in their movements and in, in their bounces, their bounds, their, their skips, the way that he progresses those things. They, it's almost like a symphony to where you could see that they would develop into very nice sprinters or runners or team sport players even. So oftentimes we've, we've talked about weights a little bit here. If you're just going to load, load, load weights, you're going to lose that elasticity. And I see beautiful elasticity in his kids, but he still lifts heavy in the appropriate manner. So I, that's one thing I took out there. The strength and conditioning uh, factor. I actually, whenever I put strength and conditioning into my Twitter profile, I sat there and I looked at it for a while and I thought about what that represented. And I thought, I do love strength because I, I've lifted a lot of weight in my life. I love lifting weights. It's, it's something that I do to, to relieve stress. I, I love lifting. But I thought, is that all that I am, essentially? Is that all that I give to my kids is strength and conditioning? And I put strength and I put speed development as, as what I do because I, I know there's a lot of other things we do, but the strength and conditioning term, I agree. I, I feel like it just boils down what we do to something that does. It should not be representative of what you're giving your app athletic populations. The thing I kind of want to go to, we've talked a lot about football and we've talked about speed already. So there's this terminology, football, versus track speed. And I've been around a lot of football coaches in my life. And there's this idea that on a given day that I don't need track speed out on the football field, essentially. This is a, this is a football game. It's a different competition. And they think that, again, we're, we're looking at the genetic factor here, that track speed's almost genetic, but it won't transfer to football. So what I'm kind of wanting to, to look at is dispelling that myth of track speed and football speed you do a great job with track football consortium. Naturally, there probably should be a marriage between the two. Right. And I, I think there is. When you look at, at how the best college programs revere track speed, I mean, they truly do. They really, I mean, if somebody can run up at 1035 in the 100 meters, that is verified speed. Uh, I, I had a great sprinter that ran 1031 in high school, the best, fastest guy in the history of the state of Illinois high school. And um, he was only 5'6", 149. But, but he got a football scholarship, you know, 5'6", 149. And he could have got a football scholarship anywhere because he was in the top three fastest guys in the nation. So I think it really is revered. But I think on social media, there are, I mean, there are people that are thrilled that there's no NFL combine this year. You know, they call it the underwear Olympics. And I guarantee anybody that's making fun of the 40, anybody that talks against track speed was probably last place in way too many races in their life. And so then, so once again, you go back to the thing that, that many times coaches come from slow. They come from, you know, where they had to learn how to do everything else and it made them good coaches. And, you know, you just cannot talk bad about track speed because it is truly a training stimulus like no other. And I, I love the SNC people now that talk about max speed, max velocity stuff. 
being a training stimulus that may put five or six inches on your vertical jump, that if you get real strong without max velocity sprinting, that's just weight room strength. You know, the power comes from how fast you can exert a force. You know, the slow force doesn't win many games. You know, it's pretty good for pushing a car up a hill, but, but you want guys collide with people. And that's, that's speed and strength, which I think go together. Yeah, I heard the term stimulus there. Like, for instance, with this podcast, whenever I developed it, I made a pyramid. And at the bottom and the base of my pyramid was the nervous system. And then above that is, is motor control and learning. And above that's locomotion. And above that, speed, power, and strength. And then above that is the realization of all those things coming together. And the purest stimulus that you can put into the system is true speed training that's going to potentiate things the idea that speed drives weights weights don't drive speed you've said it before and I've seen it I've seen it verified I think every coach starts out their career following a pathway that they themselves encountered and then I think over time you begin to find your own pathway you begin to find your own way and I I can speak to that myself I, I was a weight room guy And I still love the weight room, but seeing speed potentiate that and then potentiating speed in my weight room, those things I've seen so much more on the field from that. And and the things that you spoke about get off, I'll probably reference Matt Ray later on because you wrote a wonderful article, Roll Roll Tide, talking about their national championship and and the shift that's occurring in strength and conditioning. But he, he basically equated it to you have way under a second to produce peak force, essentially. And on a max back squat you're way out of the parameters on that so the the timing for that is way off so all the things that you said there they they do resonate with with building a complete athlete a functional athlete looking at something else that i feel like is a a hallmark of, of feed the cats and some some of the things that you've presented the idea of the minimum effective dose and before we get into this question I was kind of mulling it over. And, and one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about is quality over quantity. Cause if you, if you boil everything down and feed the cats, that's, that's what feed the cats is. I bought a pair of, of boots about a year back. I don't like to spend a lot of money on things. I bought about a $350 pair of boots. These boots were made with everything from America, essentially made by old shoe dogs. And those boots have a heart and a soul and everything's been poured into them. Whereas something that's been mass produced, a quantity type thing, something you could go down to Walmart and buy, that's not going to be around. It's not going to stick around. It didn't take as much heart and soul to produce. But the idea behind the minimum effective dose is with intent. I always tell my kids max intent. You put something out about the X factor workouts that you use. Anybody that knows anything about Feed the Cats knows X factors are a really big part of it. And you said that Extreme results never come from moderate exercises done in constant states of fatigue. Outputs must be high. So if we could, I'd like to go in the direction of minimum effective dose. What really got you going down that pathway and how you continue to build on that and and use it from session to session? Yeah, I think when you're dealing with speed, you can't, well, let's just tell the story. An hour long speed workout this past summer I recorded everything we did, came home, put it on iMovie, cut out the rest periods, and I had an 82 second video. We did 82 seconds of work in an hour. Now, 
the actual work we did, if you watch that video, it's like, holy hell, that guy is, I mean, he's not at 99%. He's at 100%. He is, those are maximum outputs. I think there are things that, that may not be best taught with minimum effective dose, but I think sprinting is one of them. And so then X factor, X factor is our exercises where we are not actually spiked up in sprinting that we have a reasonable hunch um, will make us faster. And, and one of the things that, that I say all the time is I want to look at the really fast kids and see what they, what kinds of things they do well. Well, one of the things they do well is jump. So we want our slower kids to become better jumpers. You know, our really fast kids can, can do, you know, this is, this is kind of weird. I have never had this question ever answered for me. What things can really fast kids do in the weight room that slow kids can't? And there, there's really not a good answer. Um, you know, everybody wants to go well, Olympic lifts. I go, well, that guy over there, it's pretty good Olympic lifter and he's slow. So there's, so X factor are things that, that we are trying to replicate in our fastest kids. I tell the story about the Los Angeles Dodgers that, that had a vast improvement in their hitting two years ago when they limited time in the batting cage. Just think about if you only have 50 swings instead of 500, what happens to those 50 swings? They're, they're better. And I think things that are better improve you more. I would never argue for a minimum effective dose uh, for shooting free throws. <laughs> I, I think you need to shoot 50 a day, you know, to be a great free throw shooter. So there are things that you have to repeat a lot, but we can't do 50, 40 yard dashes. We can't do that. Oh, we could, but then we're training something other than speed because we'll be very sub-max the entire time. Yeah, what I'm hearing as far as minimum effective dose, it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not going to solve all of your uh, – it's not going to provide a solution to everything in training. But something that requires high inputs from the central nervous system is something you would use minimum effective dose for. Oftentimes, people that don't want to include max velocity sprinting, people are going to get hurt. Well, if you do it 20 times, people are going to get hurt then. Max and 10 efforts, uh, like I referenced earlier, it's like pouring your soul. If you're really doing a max and 10 effort, whenever you get done, we're going to talk about the 400 in a minute. Whenever you get done, you feel like you've poured your soul out for that moment. And it's just not something you can repeat again and again and again. So we've referenced the, the weight room a little bit. And I would like to kind of shift the minimum effective dose to the weight room and how we see a shift in collegiate settings, especially, and perhaps some in, in the high school setting. But uh, Matt Ray basically said that you don't want to pursue things beyond them being optimal. You want to find the optimal range to work your population in and then cut it off there. So he's advocating for minimum effective dose. And how do you view minimum effective dose as far as the weight room's role in transferring to a speed program? Um, this, this answer is not very satisfying to S&C people, but the first thing is just a general statement to never let the weight room interfere with speed work. And then people were like, well, that didn't tell me anything, but I think it really does. Um, uh, for example, there's no way that you should squat so heavy on Monday that Tuesday and Wednesday's, Wednesday's workouts 
um, are subpar. You know, I always say never let today ruin tomorrow um, unless tomorrow there's no workout. You know, if you are going, if, if you believe that you need to crush your athletes in the weight room, make sure you do it before a weekend where they're off for two days. The way I see speed training is, is, is kind of like, it's kind of like a game. I mean, you would never crush your kids the day before a game. Well, speed training is that important. And when you prioritize speed, it does not mean you stop lifting. It means that you train speed before you lift and not after you lift. It means you don't do your hardest lifting workout on a Monday when you're wanting to have four or five great speed workouts during the week. So, you know, that is that prioritization, I think, is key. And so many people want to fight with me on that um, because I think they misunderstand the word priority. Like, like it means that everything else doesn't count or you should quit everything else. No, it's just that speed, the ability to move your body fast needs to be the thing that you work around instead of the weight room being the thing that you work around. I agree. I have some limitations as far as whenever I'm programming for my kids. So I can't just say, let's all go sprint and then let's all go lift because I don't have the weight room size. But what I try and do to alleviate that kind of is that I'm trying to look at what I'm doing in the weight room versus what's going on outside and not definitely not pouring on volume in the beginning of the week. Heavy lifts, yes, they can make you sore, but the volume, again, the minimum effective dose idea is even worse. 75% doing it for uh, 35 to 40 reps is actually going to be worse than hitting uh, 85 to 90%, you know, five to eight reps. So I try and I try and balance all those things. For, so for anybody that's out there and listening to that and you think you have limitations, I do too, and you just have to balance those two things. Uh, I, I typically try and do the best I can to sprint first, but if I can't, I try and do something and, and make them complement each other because everything and should be complementary. If I could jump in there, that, that grow where you're planted is really, really important. You know, I'm at a high school setting. I am not the head football coach. The football, the football program at every school feels like it's their weight room. And that anybody else needs to ask if they can, you know, like, hey, could I have the, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, so, so I think it's important, like in our, in most of our history here, what we did with large groups, if you have a hundred kids, they can't go to the weight room. So what we would go is we would go with half the kids sprint first, lift second. And we were very selective in who we picked. We picked the best athletes, fastest athletes, the frontline players. Those were the guys that, that got the sprint first thing. And it was the slower kids, the younger kids, the less athletic kids got the lift first. So it was it optimal for that lift first sprint second group? No, but we are, we are making tough decisions constantly as coaches that will best affect our athletes and our programs. And we're there to win. We're not really there to provide an equal experience to every kid. Um, and no, we're, we're there to, uh, it's a meritocracy. You know, we, uh, we do, I, I say this all the time to my track coaches, we are not going to spend 80% of our time working with the 20% of our kids that will never score a point for us. 
we're not going to do that. And they look at me like I'm mean or something. I'm not being mean. I'm saying that our best kids better be getting coached. It cannot be divvied out even Steven because, you know, because we're there to win. It's our best athletes playing against another school's best athletes. And if, if we're there uh, thinking that we're going to give an equal experience to every single kid, we're just kidding ourselves. Yeah, coming back off the COVID regulations, we were out a couple months and we came back and we had to split weight rooms and do all these crazy things. And I made it, I made sure that my varsity guys were running first and that they, they had first priority. Now that flip-flops in season, I have a very important lift with my varsity guys and, and some other things I do with them. And then I give full attention to my JV players and I develop them at that time. So you just have to be smart about your resources and how, and how you can divvy those out throughout a year's time. One thing I'd like to kind of shift gears, I want to eventually get here to the 400 and things, but before I, we start discussing that, as far as the role of sprint mechanics and mechanics work in your sessions, how do you layer that in? Would that be part of an X factor day? Or are you doing this before you go into your sprint work for that day? We do it before we go into the sprint work for that day. I have things that I call speed drills, and it's become really popular for a lot of people to say speed drills are stupid. We don't, you know, don't do speed drills. That's so 80s and all that kind of stuff. And then to those people, I mean, I've probably already blocked them. But what I would want to say is, when do you coach? When do you, do you coach when guys are like running sprints? You you can't coach somebody going 22 miles an hour. So they feel like they can though. <laughs> they do. Get your knees up, get your knees up. Uh, and, and so, so I take those speed drills and those speed drills are basically just learning how to get into the right shapes. Uh, there's some rhythm stuff. Uh, there's some plyometric stuff that we do in our speed drills. Our speed drills serve as our warm up, but I refuse to call them a warm up because uh, that will tell the kids to be sloppy through the whole thing. And, and we are precise. Well, you mentioned Mike Whiteman with his girls and his soccer players. I mean, it's, he has those kids like trained well. It's, it's amazing. There's like 80 kids and they're all in sync. Like I'm, yes. I was blown away the first time I saw it. Yes. And so, so I coach my butt off during that time. And for those people who say that drills are silly, I agree every time I see a soccer team doing speed drills as their warm up before a soccer match or something, I'm like, that, that makes me want to throw up, you know, because they're not doing anything right. The coach is over drinking coffee on the sideline, but, but it's totally different for us. So that's when we approach mechanics. And unlike many of these people that, that are trying to make a living being a sprint guru or something who say that every kid is individual and, and, and the sprint mechanics for one kid is not the same for the other. I'm sorry. I coach a group of 40 kids. I got 40 sprinters. I must coach to some commonalities. I do want my guys to look like Carl Lewis when they're, they are sprinting. I want that big front side mechanics. I want the, the hand crossing the hips and elbow going to the sky. I, I, I want certain things. And so, yes, we do teach to a, to a certain model of sprinting and we do not individualize instruction for 40 kids. That's crazy. Uh, can't do it. And so we do the best we can. Now I may have my fastest four kids who have been coached from by me for four years. They may look slightly different in their mechanics. 
that's okay. Of course they will. They're different kids, but that doesn't mean they were coached differently. You know, I, I, there's a certain look of a sprinter that, that I think we could all pretty much agree on. And, and then there's slight differences that we accept. I like the rationale behind the mechanics because in the world, I just identify extremes all the time, essentially. And I feel some people never advance beyond mechanics and they drill their kids and they become robots. And then I feel on the other end of the spectrum, people completely and totally abandon it and say, well, we'll just learn naturally. So I like the progression and allowing your kids to learn before they actually partake in the event and putting them in those positions that they'll, that they'll be utilizing. I often see the epidemic of overcuing kids or telling kids after they've done something and just overloading them with information. So the idea that you're in the position now and I can transfer information to you immediately and hopefully that can be fixed in the next rep or shortly. I, I like isometrics for that reason. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about mechanics is that I think people, coaches always want to explain. And that is Johnny Wooden's first law of, of learning is explanation. But we are big on explaining. And some people speak in paragraphs and they talk way too much and, you know, just shut up. But the two things, his second law and third law is so important. And that is demonstration is number two. And usually you have a kid or two in your group that does things technically perfect. The rest of the kids need to see him every day. So we will literally have a demo guy start every drill and have everybody watch him. And then everybody else, the third law, tries to imitate him. And, and then the next five laws are repetition, 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 repetition. So, so we are uh, constantly trying to make habits of the most important things that a sprinter looks like. Now, will it make every kid into a state champion? No, there's a huge variation between abilities and strength and all that kind of stuff. But, but overall, everybody can get better by running with better mechanics. If you don't have the mechanics, then, then it all breaks down eventually. It's always fun to judge where, where the breakdown occurs and what's, what's causing it. It's, Feel like you rewind a hundred times to figure that out. One one th area I want to move into. One of the hallmarks I feel like of feed the cats is your preparation for the 400. So I would like to briefly go through comparing the prep for the 400 versus the 200 and the 100 meter, uh, based off of your feed the cats philosophy. Well, that's that's easy because uh, the 100, 200, 400, we have the exact same prep. We don't, we don't change at all. And that blows people's minds, you know, because they, they all got certified with that stupid, uh, what, level one, USATF, level two. I was very lucky that, that I, was never, uh, I was never homogenized into the track and field world by being forced into those situations. I made really dumb mistakes that I corrected. I, 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 I came up with some crazy ideas that led me to places that no coach, no other coach has gone. And through this trial and error and just really having fun with it, I have found that, that we can keep a real minimal dose and be really good at the 400. Uh, we will have, uh, our first meet is in, is in 13 days. And before that meet happens, we will have one, two, three, four, four lactate workouts 
four of them. And a lactate workout is still extremely minimum dose. It, it's something like, like uh, tomorrow night we're going to do, or tomorrow in practice, we're going to do a 24 second drill. We're indoors. We're going to see how far we can go in 24 seconds and then do it again. We do 24 instead of 23 because we have a small track, 178 meter track. We will probably be next week going to do a three times 200 with a three minute break. And if you think that sounds easy, you're wrong because we are going to spike up and sprint those three 200s. And my guys aren't used to it because we just totally sell out in the off season to a pure uh, pursuit of speed, power, and elite elasticity. We don't ever condition. We don't ever do lactate stuff. We don't ever do sprint capacity stuff. We don't do any of those things. All we're trying to do is trying to run 23 miles an hour. You know, if we can get those guys become, will make you a great coach. So if we can get some guys at 23 miles an hour, uh, that means that they could possibly go out and maintain an average speed of like 18 miles an hour for 48 seconds. And that's exactly what a 48 second quarter miler has to do. He has to run 18 miles an hour for 48 seconds. And that's a pretty good high school 400 guy. Well, if you can run 23 miles an hour, 18 feels pretty easy. So we just really, really believe in that max speed thing as, as something that will create sprint endurance. And then we have those specific lactate workouts that create a biochemical toughness uh, where, where my kids do realize they're not sick after a race. They're just acidic. They're, they're just full of acidosis going on and yeah, it makes you feel terrible. But, but I tell them, I said, you know, I'm sorry, but the 400 is going to suck for you in the last hundred meters, but it's going to suck for people that work five times harder than we do. It's going to suck. And then the other thing that I have to throw in is that because I sell out to max speed, every football coach that I co that I coach with loves my program. Basically, I mean, if I can tell our head football coach that I'm going to improve every one of his guys by one mile an hour during the spring, and we're not going to just go out and run like a cross country team. He's like, coach, I'm going to send every one of my skilled people to you, which makes, once again, makes me a good track coach because, you know, the more cats you have on your team, the better you're going to be. So we were just discussing the 100, 200, and 400. And I try and get my hands in as many uh, track programming possibilities as I can. I try and look as many as I possibly can. And I see an epidemic of over-distance training for events. And if you could just speak to why you feel like that's so prevalent in programming for track and field, you're going to run a 400. Well, today I would like you to complete a 600 uh, or, or something like that. So I see over distance consistently throughout programs. And that's why whenever I looked at Feed the Cats, it was really refreshing. So if you could just speak on why you think over distance is so prevalent as a solution to running a race at a certain speed. Right. It's, it, 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 it's all because of Clyde Hart that when, when you have uh, the head coach at Baylor who won 20 NCAA championships in the four by four, and they start, they nickname your university four by four U or 400 U or whatever it is. And he puts out tons of VHS cassettes and DVDs and all that stuff on championship productions. And here's the deal because he was so high volume. I mean, they, they work seven days a week. 
they they would do they would do about five thousand meters of of they weren't sprints because they're all sub max, uh, but but they would do that like five thousand meters of intervals per week, and that's like twenty five two hundreds per week. The most we ever did was last year was I think three in a practice. I mean, so, and you have to understand that in high school track and field, the most reliable human beings maybe in the world are distance runners. They are just Eagle Scouts. They're smart. They get up in the morning, they make their bed. Um, they're very good at getting inter interviews and things. And it just makes sense to a principal that, oh, he's the cross country coach. We'll make him the head track coach. And so if you have a coach that, that is a distance coach. Running seems like something we should do. And so Clyde Hart's belief in doing lots and lots of running really made sense to these people with distance backgrounds. And so, so they would run practices where their distance guys might do uh, 10 400s, uh, no, 2400s. And then they're like sprinters would do 10 400s. And, and it's like, okay, we're just going to run the long distance guys more, but the problem is everybody gets slower in that kind of program. And the injury, injury rates oh, too. I think so too. And people always say, well, how come Clyde Hart was so good? I said, well, Clyde Hart had really good talent because it's a rigged game in college where you get things going. And those, those kids that run 46 in high school come to your school. You know, I mean, Michael Johnson was good before he ever met Clyde Hart ever. I don't get to choose my athletes. My athletes live in my neighborhood. I take whoever I can get. So if I would plug in a massive volume program, like a Clyde Hart program, my fastest kids wouldn't even want to run track. And that's really important to me. And then, and then the injury thing. And then you say, well, those uh, Michael Johnson didn't slow down. You're right. He didn't, but he was already there. <laughs> My kids, when they come in at the age of 14 or 15, they're not already there. I've had kids come in, run 16 miles an hour and leave running 23. I mean, nobody in Clyde Hart's program ever did that. He had kids coming in at 24 miles an hour and maybe left running 24.5 and they could do it for 43 seconds and be world champ in the 400 meters. So I think that you know, high school coaches are always looking for a college program to copy. And that program, because he was such a good teacher and so charismatic and such a good man, everybody really adopted that. And that's why a feed the cats approach is still in the minority in today's track world. Yeah, I think previously what we said earlier in the podcast, the fact that you often will start as a product of, of what you've experienced. I think a lot of people that are track coaches currently have probably experienced that in their past. You also said that you're dealing with high school athletes and you don't get to handpick them. The thing is, these are kids that you really want to make this an enjoyable experience. That's one thing that's refreshing to hear about Feed the Cats and uh, TFC. I'm going to get to multi-sport athletes and TFC in just a moment. But the idea that they are kids and you're trying to develop 
useful human beings for the future, people that, that realize how to pour themselves into something and work towards a result. By doing that, you're going to be rewarded. That's, that's good life skills for kids. We're working with high school level kids, not collegiate athletes. It's not like they're a professional athlete. So you're trying to foster a love within kids and, and making them run 10 400s is probably not going to foster a love for running track or anything athletic. And I think that's a great segue to TFC. You often promote it as rebel talent. And that speaks to my heart because I grew up playing punk rock music. I still love to blast punk rock music whenever I'm in the weight room myself. And it's just this idea of a rebellion against authority about not fitting or conforming into a box. So can you talk about how that idea of promoting rebel talent and the track football consortium came about? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we were talking about Clyde Hart and I was a product of Clyde Hart type of track and field, you know, high school and college. And even though I thought I was a rebel talent when I was 22, I wasn't. I coached the way I was coached. I was, we're going to outwork everybody we play, you know, just like every other coach that ever coached me. And it wasn't until, until I was 40 that I flipped the switch and and that's when Feed the Cat started and everything where we went minimal dose and we're going to sprint and we're going to make things really fun and attractive to athletes. So we were, I was already there kind of in terms since I was 40 um, for the last 22 years, I've been in that thing where I don't want to be like everybody else. I, I want, I, I want to be different. I want I want the kids to have an, an unusual love of track and field the kids that I coach. And by the way, everybody thinks the feed the cats is soft. My kids will kill themselves because healthy and happy kids are very competitive. Uh, and a lot of people think, Oh, we just go goof around. That's not true. So the other, my, the yin to my yang is, is uh, Chris Corfist. And he is the most unique human being I've ever known. He is, he is so giving of his time. I don't think he's ever said no to anybody ever. I mean, like, Hey, uh, my kid has a, a, a tight hamstring. He said, bring him over. I'll work on him. You know, and he's just, you know, he works, you know, with the Chicago Cubs, he works with Jacksonville Jaguars. He trains a bunch of Chicago bears, but he is, he's not even the same coach as he was a year ago. He is evolving like at the speed of sound. And I think sometimes he's evolving too fast. I always tell him, you were a good coach 10 years ago. Maybe you should be doing some of those things too. And he goes, well, I guess I was a pretty good coach then. So anyway, the two of us, and we're very different human beings, but we kind of fit together in the fact that we love creativity. We truly believe that high school sports are more than just a sport. It's not a business. It is the greatest classroom in the world is a football team basketball team a track team a baseball team and and that's why we're big on the multi-sport thing and there's there's not two sports in the world that complement each other better than football and track speed-based power-based elasticity uh, but here's the big thing about football is you can't play football out of the season I mean like you play those 9 10 11 games whatever you play in the fall it's not like an AAU basketball player that plays 12 months a year. You are only playing football two or three months a year. So you have to find something else to do in the other nine months. And some people want to just live in a weight room. 
Um, and you'll get big and strong and slow if you just live in a weight room. But if you do the weight room and do the speed training and go out for track, then like the speed stuff counteracts all the negatives of the weight room. I know, I know it's, it hurts people when they say negatives in the weight room, but there are negatives in the weight room that are counterbalanced by speed and speed training. So that whole idea that we are going to have a clinic where we are going to bring football coaches and track coaches together. And I think that cross-pollination always makes for interesting offspring. And I, I just, I have learned so much from, I mean, we brought in Mike Whiteman, a soccer guy, uh, you know, to speak at our last one. And we just learned so much from people that are bringing fresh ideas to the table. Yeah, I get a lot from the community too. I'm I'm not directly involved at, at the moment, but Chris Corfus, your content, Chris Corfus's content. I actually found Corfus through Cal Dietz. Me being a weight room guy, the guy that kind of cracked my mind open was Cal Dietz, and then got me wondering about power and speed development. And then I found Chris Corfus, and he's got a lot of madness to his methods, as you alluded to. But man, it makes a lot of sense. And and we use all the spring ankle and contrast methods that I've found between those two guys, and really benefited from employing those methods. To kind of close out, the last kind of focus I want to direct this towards is the idea of multi-sport athletes. You already alluded to it with TFC, and you guys promote uh, multi-sport athletes. I see you guys doing it all the time on Twitter. And why are you such a strong proponent for the multi-sport athletes? Re-emphasize the thing that education-based sports are one of the most, is the greatest thing about public schools. Education-based sports, there's not, and I was a good chemistry teacher, but I guarantee my chemistry classroom wasn't as good as, as the football field was or the track there, because there's an emotional competitive component in sports that make, if you ask almost any athlete to name the most influential people in their life, it was our high school coaches. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're charismatic they're emotional people. Uh, there's a lot of love in sports that, that you don't really see that as much in the classroom. It's just like a business in the classroom. But there's so much of that team and coach and gosh, too many athletes, their high school coach was more important to them than their father was. And I don't think many students say that about their teachers. So, so I just think that, that we should never limit a kid's access to multiple sports. Then comes the other side. There are people that are really, really working at trying to get kids to specialize. There are, um, there's people that own gyms. Yeah, and that, make money off of it too. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the, 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 if that kid goes out for track, he's not lifting at the gym. There's, there's AAU basketball coaches who they get their thrill pretending like they're coach K all summer and traveling around the country and the parents pay for their travel. And, and, and so he's telling basketball players not to run track, not to play football. There are uh, football coaches that hoard their athletes that they want to have that group. If they could build a wall around their, that group and just have them, what, I mean, like there are football coaches that are that way. They are so possessive. So there are so many th things working against the multi-sport athlete now. 
somebody needs to stand up and say, what's good about it? Oh, and I forgot one other group, parents. Parents are the first people that consider specialization because when, when you look at the thing where, oh my God, my kid's going to have to borrow $200,000 to go to college. Oh, but what if he gets a scholarship? And they don't know anything about scholarships. They don't know that baseball only has 11 scholarships and to get a full ride in baseball is like damn near impossible. I mean, if you're not a football or basketball player, you're probably not going to get a full ride scholarship anywhere. Um, if you're a girl, you got a good shot because they have to equalize the two. But parents are constantly, I had the best thrower in the history of our school. And his dad was a pharmacist from Nigeria. And his dad said, no, you're, you're going to lift weights in the spring. You're not going to throw for in track. I'm not letting you go out for track. You know, you, I want you to get a scholarship. And so, you know, I had to talk to that kid and he went home, talked to his dad and the rest is history. He still went to college as a, as a great football player, because if you can throw the discus 170 feet, you're probably going to be an improved football player too. So it just all works together. And I've just been in this high school business a long time. It's all oh, here. Here's a funny thing too. Some people argue that or say, yeah, it's awful the way coaches make kids play other sports. I've never seen that ever in my experience. We, what I'm saying is that if, if you are one of the fastest kids in your school, nobody should tell you not to run track. If you are a great, great football player, but you think you like basketball better, nobody should tell you not to play football. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not, we're not pushing people into it. We're just encouraging it. And it makes a lot of sense from, from my perspective, if you specify early, I feel like you have the chance to, to injure yourself. Uh, like for, for baseball, for instance, throwing year round mm. on a young adolescent's arm, that's not good. A lot of things I tweet out talk about the fact that the things that I'm trying to do in my preparation cannot equate to what's going to happen in competition. So if you take a track person and all they run is track, linear speed is beautiful, but then we're missing the change of direction elements that are going to be happening in sports like football and basketball. So I feel like it just complements, and, and my focus on this podcast is how to build a holistic well-profiled athlete and I think that is the most pure way you can do it and kids can do it while enjoying themselves building friendships that will last a lifetime and learning lessons together essentially coach Holler I've enjoyed our conversation just to close out one of the things that I've taken from you that's really kind of changed the way that I look at things is the idea of essentialism and you you've mentioned the book by is it was it by Robert McCowan uh it, Greg McKeon Greg essentialism the idea that if your energy is dispersed all over the place then you can't properly direct it and one of the quotes that you used was actually from one of my favorite authors Thoreau and it, it goes our life is frittered away detail by detail you must simplify 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 I say let your affairs be as much as two or three and not a hundred or a thousand so one of the things that I've taken away from you and I find uh, beautiful about feed the cats is the idea that you simplify and the idea that you project yourself fully into a task that's right and and on top of that you really care about the happiness and the healthiness of the people around you and I, I think you know I, I say I feed the cats as a parent you know I had four kids you know you talk about multitasking 
you, you better, you better have some priorities or you go crazy. And um, I, I just think that the, uh, the more simply you see things, the happier you're going to be um, as, as a person. And then if you really put the right priorities that are, you know, besides speed, just the fact that, that happy and healthy kids really excel. And so you cannot ignore that. And I think education's always ignore, always ignored that. And I think many coaches said, practice is not supposed to be fun, boys. Fun comes in the game. And that's the way I was always taught. And, you know, and, and I've just kind of flipped that and say, hey, practice can be fun too. We can perform in practice. We don't have to be trudging through everything we do in life. We can be energetic and happy and get after stuff. Yeah, I've heard you allude to it on, on prior podcasts, the fact that feed the cats is something that can be applied to more than just a track workout. And I see you actually doing that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to talk about your resources uh, before we get off of here. But uh, feed the cats is, is essentialism, and it's something that can be applied to many different things within your life, simplifying and uh, going towards a goal within a sustainable way. So, Coach, before we jump off the podcast, if you would, just tell people where they can find you and some of the resources that you have available. Uh, social media, I'm at PN Track, P N T R A C K, PN Track. Uh, I have uh, my track team's website is pntrack.com. All of my most recent content, uh, video wise, is on CoachTube now. It's, um, I think I'm up to about 15 courses. It's crazy how much stuff is out there, but they've sold really, really well. And for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm not poor. Um, it's, I, I lived an entire life in poverty and here I had to retire from teaching to actually feel like I don't have to worry about if I had a leak in my roof or something. Um, so, so yeah, you can find my stuff there and, and just by Google, I, I was told the other day by the CEO of CoachTube that feed the cats is Googled 600 times a month. So somebody must be finding the stuff out there by just typing in feed the cats and finding stuff. Yeah, you have a lot of great resources. Uh, you have Feed the Cats for a variety of athletic populations now on CoachTube. Also, anybody that's listening, there's a ton of Simply Fast articles that, that uh, Coach Hollers wrote that are great. The 400 is a sprint is one of them that we kind of use today. And then the Roll Tide model is another one that, that he put out recently that's awesome as well. So you have a ton of content on Freelap and, and Simply Faster. But I just want to thank you, Coach, for taking your time uh, to sit down with me today and discuss some things. Jesse, it's been a ball. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you took a lot away from this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the content. And if you feel led to, drop me a rating and review.